Support for Waveform comes from Anthropic. So looking for an AI solution for a business, it might be time to check out the Claude 3 family from Anthropic, your one-stop shop for enterprise AI. So whether you're powering a customer chat experience or doing complex R&D or need advanced analysis, Anthropic can help provide you with frontier intelligence. So if you're looking for speed, power, or anything in between, the Claude 3 family offers AI models for a variety of tasks and budgets. Join the thousands of enterprises who use Anthropic to navigate this new frontier. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude, C-L-A-U-D-E, today. Jumpstart your genius with Claude 3 by Anthropic. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. What's up, people of the internet? And people of the internet, yes, it's David. Uh, today we got a little bonus episode for you. Don't worry, we've got a regular episode on Friday still, so stay tuned for that. But I wanted to dig a little bit deep into what exactly AI is, right? I think we all have been hearing about that for months now, um, years possibly, but nobody actually has really explained like what it is or how it works, right? Like people just say that things are AI, but what does that even mean? Um, so I want to give an answer for that. So I called up my friend from Google who definitely knows what that means. And we have a little nice conversation about how this all works. So hope you enjoy. Uh, Dana was gracious enough to come on the podcast. And of course we met at my cafe. Classic. Uh, so yeah, we're going to debrief after this, but, um, enjoy. We've been talking a lot about uh, AI and generative AI and all of the stuff that's happening in the world right now, and it's very confusing. So we thought it would be actually pretty useful if we got someone who knew what they were talking about to come on the podcast. We weren't just speculating constantly. So today uh, we have Danu Mbanga with us. Uh, he is Google's head of generative AI or director of generative AI. So we're going to have a long conversation about what that means. All right. So Danu. If you were to explain to someone, including me, what you do at Google or as your job, what would that be? We, we try to incubate uh, generative AI solutions into production-grade applications for uh, companies, startups, and or enterprises. So that, would that include, like, a company comes to you, they say, we want to use generative AI, and then you work with them to actually integrate it into their product? That's correct. Uh, but we do we do have many other teams that really focus on that long-tail work of integration, so to say. Our interest is to figure out what are the patterns that are not necessarily common at this point, or the new ones, mm-hmm. and then really turn that into 10x scalable mm-hmm. packages. So, as you know, many of these technology items, especially within the AI space, are fairly new. Right? Yeah. So, they demand new technologies, they demand new approaches to technologies. And then what we do is to try to figure out what are the patterns within this a bit open ecosystem at this point and package these patterns into applications that we can now either give to the teams that are more consistently working on with, with, with customers on putting that into their product mm-hmm. or open source these capabilities so that some folks can use that. So instead of just throwing in a chat bot 
that is based on a large language model. You're actually integrating a specific solution that makes more sense to that company. Exactly. Think about the early days of programming when when people were writing code, right? So you have a bunch of folks writing programs, and then sometime I think about the 80s and the 90s, there's this common pattern around design patterns that emerged, where some folks would say, "Hey." put these things together and then it's going to be called the specific pattern, so mm -hmm. to say. And then based on the design pattern, you somewhat create a new language and a new mechanism for people to use technology in a bit more consistent manner. So it's it's what we do. So we try to understand what are the design patterns of AI and Gen AI, hmm. and then put that into either technology and or educational artifacts for people to use. Yeah, so I want to get into a little bit about what AI actually is because we talk a lot about AI and generative AI and all this stuff on the podcast because it's like the only conversation happening right now and for the last year. <laughs> um, but I think that something that confuses a lot of people is the fact that you see all these companies that are saying, we have AI now, we have AI now, and nobody really knows what that means. Sometimes it means they added a large language model chatbot. Sometimes it means they added some stuff under the hood that is doing a lot of work. Sometimes it means they're just rebranding something that wasn't really AI into AI. So in your words, what is AI in relation to what we're seeing in the industry right now? So um, to me, right, AI is a, it's a system, so to say. It's a collection of tools, techniques, science and engineering capabilities. Um, and we get when we get to talk about generative AI, I'm also going to talk about it in terms of a system because I don't think it's necessarily one single thing. Mm -hmm. um, and it has evolved over time. But if you look at that system, that AI system overall, um, it's, it's uh, again, like I said, a collection of tools and technologies that are really geared towards uh, providing human cognitive capabilities to uh, computers and make it so that these computers can accelerate the processes through which we uh, we produce um, different things in technology. So you can think of AI as being a collection of planning and scheduling and sensing the, the world around us and understanding that world into a set of cognitive uh, uh, containers, so to say, and then being able to do other things out of that level of understanding. So AI is somewhat bringing intelligence, human intelligence, analogs to the computers overall. Mm -hmm. And so I know that's a bit of a complex definition, but that's, that's where we are now in mm -hmm. understanding that as a system. And when you try to break that down into what that really means in terms of technology, then it comes in three major forms. Um, one of the major form, which is an umbrella term, which is AI, it encompasses things like, uh, like I say, planning, sensing, scheduling, and then processing that data that you sensed um, with a, a certain list of tools. And then these tools are usually borrowed from the mathematical worlds of uh, statistics and probability. And then combining the collection of these tools is what we traditionally call machine learning. Mm -hmm. um, so AI is bigger than machine learning. And then within machine learning, you have a set of tools that are mathematical, statistical, and whatnot. And then a subset of these tools, which is also the essence of uh, generative AI, is a family of techniques called deep learning. Mm -hmm. And so deep learning is uh, involved with using neural networks, so to say, which is almost uh, an artificial representation or analog or modeling of what the brain could possibly look like to the full extent of our understanding of it. Mm -hmm. And try to, trying to represent essentially a data structure that would be used to process 
um, and sort of techniques that would be used to process the data that is sensed. Just to reel it back for a sec so that people understand the difference between those three, can you, in a couple of sentences, define the difference between machine learning, or like individually, what is machine learning, what is deep learning, and then what is, um, what was the third one you said? AI. I guess AI, yeah. Between those three, can you can you define them in like two sentences each? Got it. So with AI, you want the machine to do things that seem human, so to say, right? Imagine being here and someone asks you, hey, David, what is the color of the car in the garage? You would have to do a few things. You would have to plan the way you would get out and get to the garage. You would have to look at this artifact in the garage and understand it as a car. And then you would have to understand colors and then look at that and say, okay, the color is red, for example. Mm -hmm. So there is this set of steps, so to say, that you have to carry out as a human intelligent person that would say, okay, I'm going to plan my way out. I'm going to plan my way into the garage. I'm going to look at this object, detect that object as a car, and then eventually detect the colors, right? So there are a few things that you do. Now, if you were to break that, so that's AI, so to say, mm -hmm. uh, imagining that a system could do that, imagining asking a robot to do the same set of tasks, then overall, I would consider that to be AI. Now, if you break that into some levels of deeper details, the and taking out the planning and scheduling, what are the techniques that you use possibly for navigating this ecosystem all the way up until you got to the garage? Mm -hmm. right? What are the different techniques that you use in order to analyze that object and understand that as a car? Mm -hmm. And so that, that set of techniques is what is machine would, learning. It's machine learning. Okay, so, so it's like machine vision and like object recognition. That exactly. kind of stuff would be the machine learning techniques that get applied on top of AI that create the machine learning mechanism. Exactly. So machine learning could be considered just the the mathematical underpinning set of artifacts that you would use as a subset of AI, okay. right? So, yeah. and then deep learning is just one of these techniques that, so within the concept, the context of machine learning, there are different techniques. Like one of them is called ne uh, nearest neighbors. It's usually preceded with a, uh, with a K. So K is for a number. We can say, what are the four nearest neighbors to David and Danu? And mm -hmm. then as a matter of fact, we would look at all the people that are within these buildings and then understand what are the people that have a distance that is the four uh, closest distance to us. So mm -hmm. those are the four nearest neighbors. Mm -hmm. That's just one technique out of many techniques. There's another technique called support vector machines, and there are many other techniques like regression, classification, mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. Now, deep learning is a subset of all of these techniques that uses neural networks as a representation of the data that you would use to process in order to identify objects, classify objects, and so on and so forth. So you get AI as a bigger bucket that has other things, including planning and scheduling mm -hmm. and sensing. Mm -hmm. uh, you get machine learning that is more focused on the mathematical and statistical and probabilistic techniques. Yeah, okay. And then you get deep learning that is just one of the applications of machine learning techniques that focuses more on artificial neural networks. Got you. And then it, deep learning, did that become something that became very popular in the vernacular because it was uh, it was discovered that it was a very good way to do machine learning? Did people try to do a bunch of different machine learning techniques, but deep learning just became the most useful one? That is correct. And when we, so bringing, bringing it back to your initial question, which was how does, how do these techniques or how do these definitions relate to the current state of affairs yes. of, uh, of machine learning? Yeah. So it's very related because uh, machine learning has been applied 
for a while, deep learning also for the last 10, 20 um, years, so sure. to say. Yeah. So the techniques have been around, but then the techniques were boosted based on the advent of, of a couple of capabilities. And then so we started observing that deep learning was really doing two things. One it uh, was that it was able to process a large amount of data. Mm-hmm. And so the traditional machine learning techniques, supervised learning and so on, they would they would tend to plateau when, when you give it too much data. Mm. So it would give you some performance and at some point it wouldn't really give you more. It doesn't scale. It doesn't scale. So you start having diminishing returns. So you spend a lot of compute capabilities, but you're not really getting good results. Um, But with deep learning, it was seen that you can one, parallelize that aggressively if you have a lot of compute capabilities, GPUs and or TPUs. Mm -hmm. And two, it wouldn't necessarily plateau. That means that you can give it a lot of data and, it and keeps the performance scaling and performance. keep going up. Mm. And so what what we saw was that um, the techniques have been applied for the last many years, but their techniques are increasingly getting better and better given the advent of additional capabilities that mm-hmm. are supporting that increase in performance. Mm-hmm. What is that additional capability that has really tipped the scale, especially in the last year? Uh, let's go back to the last six years, so to say, with the invention of the transformer yeah. architecture. Do you want to explain what that is? So the transformer architecture is, is uh, was created in 2017. And before that, there were many other architectures within the deep learning ecosystem that were used to process data scale. Um, one of the abilities for these systems to process text, for example, or sequences of data, things like music, things like video, things that have to deal with frames, um, was had been studied for many years, right? So we had sequence-to-sequence models. We had things that we called LSTM, long short-term memory models. That essentially made it possible for someone to uh, process sequence data and even possibly generate sequence data. But the problem with those architectures was that if you have a text, if you have an entire page, and then you want to either summarize that or analyze that, then you have to put the entire thing into the model. And then so we started having limitations with the capabilities that the machines themselves would have to host that amount of text in order for you to ask a specific question for, of that text, for example, what is this text talking about? Mm-hmm. Or generate a summary of this text or whatnot. So there were some scaling issues. Because um, if you were to synthesize the entire page of text, it's hard, it's more computationally expensive to the N plus one degree to generate or to synthesize more and more text as exactly. you add words. Exactly. And it, it scale it scale quadratically, essentially. Mm-hmm. Right. The other thing is that to improve the quality, specifically when you have to analyze things like text, you want to maintain a certain, say, grammatical structure. If uh, if you're being asked a question about a sentence, sometimes the answer is really towards the end of a sentence. Mm-hmm. But you have to maintain the context with the beginning of a sentence. So there was this idea of essentially um, keeping or maintaining a structure of the content that you're analyzing mm-hmm. by do, um, applying different mechanisms. And one of the mechanisms that was invented with the transformer architecture in 2017 is what we call the attention mechanism. So the attention mechanism is a mechanism through which within the neural network, it's possible for you to maintain a structure or keep information about how, let's say, specific words are related within the text that you're analyzing. Mm-hmm. So essentially you're coming up with a mechanism through which you can, analy- you can analyze a large amount of text while still maintaining the information about how these specific tokens and or words 
words is just one representation or tokens are one representation of words mm-hmm. are related within that context. Now, it gets very expensive computationally and on memory and storage to get that done. Mm-hmm. And that was the challenge pre-2017. Mm-hmm. What the transformer architecture brought um, about was the ability to process these large amounts of data, maintain the structure that they have, and it not being extremely uh, expensive on the hardware, the storage, and the compute. Mm -hmm. So then it was possible by basically parallelizing some of these architectures to make it possible for you to process a very large amount of data, Mm -hmm. build extremely scalable, very, very internet scale models if you had the hardware for it, Mm -hmm. and then eventually being able to get some intelligence out of it. And then a couple of things started happening. One is that, you remember when I said that if you were able to uh, basically break through the plateauing of diminishing returns when you start having more and more and more performance. Sure. Yeah. So we started seeing things going this way, where you you get more and more performance, and eventually you get new abilities, you get emergent abilities mm-hmm. out of the same models. When you say emergent abilities, do you mean things that we didn't expect? Exactly. Um, traditionally, we would train what we call supervised models based on tasks. And then so essentially what I would be would be that you would go to the model and say, what's the color of this object? And then we say red. So that's, an, that's a model that is trained towards understanding, given an object, what is the color? Mm-hmm. And so the way you do that is that you, you give it a lot of examples that are labeled and you say, this is a mug, the mug is red and black. This is another mug, the, this mug is white and so on and so forth. You tag it manually. Exactly. And the next time you show it some data, it will give you you know, mug. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's expensive to basically train one model that can recognize mugs, recognize people, also answer a question, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. So being able to give multiple tasks, so to say, to a single model that you train once was a challenge. But with To a trans- make it multimodal. Yeah, multimodal has a couple. Yeah, you can make it multitask and multimodal. Multimodal, essentially, to a level of simplicity, really means that you're able to get the model to analyze images and text and audio yeah. and video at the same time. Right. And then it could it could be multimodal input, single output, i.e. you, you train the model to see images, text, audio, video, but you're only asking it questions about text or mm-hmm. in the text-to-text format. Mm-hmm. Um, that paradigm is called a picture is worth more than a thousand words. So you can <laughs> essentially get multiple pictures within the model, get it to learn from it, but the way you interact with it is still in a text manner. Okay. So we started seeing benefits where very, very large models that had seen a lot of data coming out of the entire, not the entire, but a huge part of crawled website, for example, uh, a huge part of you know data that is available out there started behaving in such a way that they had this almost general purpose intelligence. Um, They could do reasoning up to a certain extent. Hmm. And that is tested by giving it some mathematical problems and then it would do derivations, so to say, assuming that it had seen some of these derivations in um, some mathematical books, for example, Mm -hmm. or writings. Mm -hmm. So it would learn that structure, leveraging the attention mechanism and being able to derive the answer step by step and give you a specific answer. And is that still considered an emergent property if it was being fed different levels of ver- of derivations through different text input? That's a very good question. So the thing that makes the thing that makes that an emergent property is the fact that it's doing that in a multitask fashion. 
So remember, initially we would train one model to do one thing. So if it was one model that was trained only on doing a derivation over a specific mathematical problem set, that would be very simple. It mm -hmm. wouldn't be considered emergent. Sure. But if you train one model that can do that on a mathematical corpus, at the same time take an, a, an SAT exam, at the same time uh, give you a summary of a specific piece mm. of uh, text that you give it, and at the same time write code, Mm -hmm. at the same time optimize code and review code mm. at the same time so those are the different kinds of emerging properties that a multi-task so to say a large model i um, is able to do in your opinion is are those emergent properties kind of subsets of the attention mechanism like is that the thing that really allows it to do these kind of things one analog that um i would I would give you is, you know, in physics, for example, when you have particles that are moving at a very, very fast pace, so to say, in a contained environment, mm -hmm. then you start getting temperature, yeah, right, heat and, and whatnot. And if they move faster, then you get higher and higher temperature. Temperature itself or heat itself is not necessarily something that is uh, is a is a physical artifact. It's, it's sure. an emergence of that fast movement. Right. But that movement itself is very simple. Right. Right. So similarly, the attention mechanism makes it so that uh, the specific elements that you feed the model get to learn about each other. And so they mm. get this interaction mode through which they basically function. They have this simplistic function mm. mechanism at a very, very low level. Yeah. And there's almost this transformation, this phase transition that yeah. happens where the higher level thing, which is the model, starts giving you some of these specific behaviors yeah. in a multitask fashion. It has skill sets you didn't anticipate it to exactly. be able to have that are based on things you did give it, but exactly. you didn't realize were connected. Exactly. A couple of other emerging properties, one of my favorite is, is called in-context learning, where basically a large model now would learn from what we call demonstrations. Mm -hmm. So again, traditionally, you would want to give an input to the model and then the model will give you an answer. That is a straight um, uh, input-output relationship. But some of these models today, you could say, hey, give me an answer that looks like this. Or here are four demonstrations of the kinds of questions that I will be asking you. Therefore, going forward from now, I need you to be answering these questions in this manner. Mm -hmm. And for some reason, it's able to remember that context, right. learn from these demonstrations that you gave it, and then start giving you answers going forward that sounds like that. Mm -hmm. And that's why- uh, Is that something we didn't expect it to be able to do? Exactly. That's why systems like uh, like ChatGPT or BART are, are very interesting in that sense, because you can even basically tell the, the system, hey, you are a knowledgeable scientist about this field. Mm -hmm. Given that background, start answering my questions. <laughs> And then it will be giving you some very interesting, and then th there are many ways you can get creative about that space, right? You can say you are a very funny and creative artist, start giving me answers within these specific uh, steps. And the last emerging property I'm gonna talk about is what we call uh, ch um, chain of thought or, or reasoning. I think I, I, I spoke about it a bit earlier, mm -hmm. where the, the model or the AI system is able to give you a step-by-step -step breakdown on on how it came up with the answer. Right. Right. So right. that's very interesting too. And that's definitely not something we expected it to be able to do. Exactly. Okay, so that was a lot. Uh, I think there's a lot of answers to this question, but effectively it seems like AI is sort of the outer layer where you try to teach machine, like human analogs to a machine. And then you've got machine learning, which is a subset of AI and deep learning, 
which is a subset of machine learning. And then when you feed these models just these enormous amounts of data, you end up with these emergent properties that you're not really expecting. Uh, we're gonna get a little bit deeper into those uh, emergent properties and very philosophical next. So stick around. I think I'm gonna go get a coffee first. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Support for this show comes from NetSuite. And that's exactly what NetSuite provides. Support. But what they really provide is support where you need it, because no one needs help where they don't need it. So NetSuite wants to provide you with products and services that are tailor-made for your business. Help where you need it. NetSuite is a top-rated cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math, see how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended their one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks, so head to netsuite.com slash waveform. That's netsuite.com slash waveform, netsuite.com slash waveform. So I think that um, because large language models and chatbots and things like Dolly are sort of the only things that a lot of normal people in their everyday life have seen AI affecting, is there, what what else is the transformer transforming like what what uh what industries are being kind of like pulled up by ai and what's actually driving that because i think that most people just see like oh we've got chat gpt oh now this random app that i never talked to has a chat bot for some reason mm -hmm. right but like we hear all across every industry that every industry is being uplifted by ai so is that also transformer based and how is that working since it's not using a language model Right. So the transformers started the revolution, so to say. Right. So the ability to have these emerging properties. And since then, so that was in 2017. It's been, what, six years now. Mm -hmm. um, since then, there's been a lot of evolution of that specific architecture. There's been a lot of creativity around you know, building some of these AI systems, generative AI systems that can generate uh, images or text or given some text, give you some image, or given some image, give you some text as captioning, and or applying this paradigm shift, so to say, into many uh, uh, industries and many applications. There are two ways I would say we can look at this. One is old school AI is not gone, right? So we're still using that. We're still applying hmm. some of these techniques or recommender systems. Uh, you know, when you go on the website, you're still being recommended some artifacts, some things to to buy and or uh, suggestions of books to read and whatnot. So many of these initial applications of AI are they're really, really uh, 
useful for very large companies that have the abilities. And this is one thing that I really like talking about. Very big companies that have the ability to hire hundreds of engineers, so to say, or dozens of engineers, highly trained, highly paid, that can build some of these highly tuned systems that would scale to, say, hundreds of millions of users. Mm -hmm. right? For the businesses that are not the multi-billion dollar businesses, we're seeing new opportunities open up right? mm. because these industries can now use some of these generative AI systems. In the past, you needed about seven months to 18 months to build an application with programmers, designers, uh, product managers, and mm -hmm. so on and so forth. But now if you have a vision, well, you can go on board and say, hey, this is my vision, help me iterate on that, give me five ideas that are related to this. Mm -hmm. And then after that, you can say, hey, now write a, a product requirement specifications for a system that may look like that. And then you can say, hey, based on all of these interaction, write a project plan. Mm -hmm. And you can iterate on that context with the, with the bot, the chatbot, so to say. And then after that, you can say, hey, considering these artifacts or considering everything that we've talked about, help me write a design document that I could use to implement this app, this solution, mm -hmm. and it would do that. Mm -hmm. And then you can say, now I need you to help me implement this in Python. Mm -hmm. You know, design the APIs for me, write the implementation of the APIs for me, write the system design for me. It could even help you draw some of these things. And so what you're seeing is that you're moving from a, a life cycle where you had to use about 18 months with a team of 10 to even get an idea into a good shape mm -hmm. to probably a matter of hours to weeks working with prompts and being very creative in the way you interact with that bot or as a smaller group you interact with that bot yeah to come up with a solution that is pretty pretty good yeah and so what i see is that many industries um many startup and enterprises are really really taking advantage of that i've seen good examples in media I've seen good examples in, in healthcare and life sciences. I've seen good examples in financial services. But in all things, essentially, I'm seeing a lot of uh, movement. Do you use these kind of systems in your own work to build your own APIs yeah. and stuff? You use BARD for your own work? Yeah, I yeah. use BARD. I use BARD every day. Every time I have an idea, every time I want to process something, I use BARD to iterate on the idea. Wow. Um, I use BARD for uh, outlines. Hmm. If I if I need to give a talk, for example, at a conference, um, usually for me, the process of creating content would be based on the work that it depends on the topic, but based on the work that I do and based on some research, I try to come up with a specific outline that really touches on the points that I would like to talk about. Mm -hmm. And so I use BARD to create to help me create that outline. Mm -hmm. And then I may fill the outline myself and give it back to BARD and say, hey, help me summarize this. Mm. And or help me extract specific talking points out of this. Yeah. Uh, and then I can say, hey, make this a bit more creative and make this a bit more, you know, in, in different types of tones. So there's this, that's one mode of interaction. Mm -hmm. The other mode of interaction is the one that I spoke about earlier, which is when I have an idea, rough idea, say, I want to create a system that helps you determine what coffee you're going to drink uh -huh. in the morning based on prior, whatever. Like just sure. a toy example like that. Yeah. And so I can formulate specific questions and interact with BART in that way. And I could have a prototype before the end of the day. That works, that is implemented in Python full stack. That's crazy. And back end, yeah. everything. Yeah, so yeah. that's like a productivity explosion. Exactly. I wanna reel it back a little bit because we, uh, we talked about AI, we talked about machine learning, we talked about deep learning, but the big thing that's being, that's on everyone's mind in the last year is generative AI, which you've 
talked about multiple times so far, but we didn't really define what generative AI is and what makes it different from those uh, other forms of AI. So can you give a quick explanation of what generative AI actually is? Remember we talked about AI overall being a system, mm -hmm. not just one thing. Uh, so, and machine learning being a set of techniques that are more mathematical in nature, deep learning being one of these techniques that focuses a bit more on neural networks. So by virtue of, of getting something that is a lot more fundamental, generative AI is a deep learning technique. Mm -hmm. So it's still using the deep learning technologies, but generative AI is really focused on generating or creating a specific artifact. And so that artifact could be an image, it could be a piece of text, or it could be a piece of audio, or it could be something else. So, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's a very simplistic definition of what generative AI is. And what, what is the foundation of generative AI? Like what allows that to work? Because we see things like generative fill in Photoshop, we see generated music now, like every single creative industry and non-creative industry is being sort of upended by this generated content. What is allowing systems to actually generate content instead of just classifying content? Yeah, so that, that's a beautiful question in the sense that it, it there's a very, very strong common denominator among all of these things. And that's the transformer architecture yeah. that we spoke about earlier, mm -hmm. right? So what we've, saw, what we've seen is that applying the same technique and then changing the question a little bit gives you exactly uh, content that is generated that, that you're interested in. For example, we can say using these lower transformer architecture help me generate an image you can give um the the generative ai problem as given images of different artifacts like animals like cats and dogs and whatnot mm -hmm. create something that looks like some of these things uh using i don't know interpolation or extrapolation different techniques and make it look like the family of things that i've shown you in the past and it would give you something that doesn't exist in real life maybe the image very high fidelity image of a dog or a cat that doesn't exist in real life mm -hmm. but really really looks like the samples of the things that you've shown it in the past so the ability for these models to essentially create uh content in different modalities is the generative ability yeah so we think about like large language models being fed into a transformer right and that's just like give me all of the text that has ever been written on the internet and we can develop relationships between words but when you're when you're generating an image or you're generating audio, what is being fed into the transformer in that way, right? Because we we see uh, you know there's um, a lot of genetics work that's being worked on with transformers too. Okay. What kind of data do you feed into transformers to actually make that work in a m variety of different fields? Right. So in general, you would give it today. And text was very easy easier to acquire. That's why you hear of large language models today mm. a lot more. Right. And I and the results also from generating text were a lot more impressive and exciting to look at. That's why, in my opinion, that field somewhat took over. But you're right. So there are you could consider the input to be pretty much anything that could be put into a sequence. Mm -hmm. you, a, a video, for example, is a sequence of frames. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So you could give multiple videos uh, broken down into frames uh, to uh, a transformer-based architecture, and it gets a bit more complex in the way those sequences of process or structure is maintained, the many techniques around our attention mechanism and so on and so forth. Oh, but okay. let's consider that to be a black box and then it knows how to do that. Then what you give it is a set of frames, which are videos, so mm -hmm. to say, and then you say, give me something that looks like that. So in that sense, you've given it 
videos of, or of set of frames. Um, you could also have a mechanism through which you give it videos and text, which we do today. There is this um, encoding uh, model that is called Clip, essentially putting together images and videos, mm -hmm. I mean, and text. And which is the foundations of Dolly and a lot of AI image generation. At least the foundational technique of, uh, of uh, these kinds of abilities, mm -hmm. where you, you, you teach the model to recognize images and text together. As a, as a joint uh, entity, so to say. And the process through which you do that is by getting the images processed with what we call a tokenizer and or encoder specific to an image. And uh, that turns that into a vector. We call that an embedding. Mm -hmm. And then you, do, you go through the same kind of process with a text where you turn the text into a vector. And then once you have these two vectors, you can then combine them with basically algebra. Mm -hmm. And then at a higher level, you have the task and order question that you want the model to answer. Mm -hmm. In one scenario, you could you would want the model to say, for example, given an image, explain the content of this image for me. Or you right. may have the reverse problem, which is given a text, generate an image mm -hmm. that contains the, the information, so to say, that I've provided in this text, which mm -hmm. is the business of um, mid-journey. Yeah. So so as a kind of to break that down, you're depending on the field that you're trying to use transformers on, you are turning data into numbers and Correct. you're comparing those numbers to each other and then getting an output. Correct. So because you're able to take video or images or text and vectorize them and turn them into tokens, you can compare them to each other even though they're different types of media. Correct. Correct. That that is that is excellent. And the the one of the things that makes it really work beautifully is because once you take the images or video or audio, you encode that into your initial vector. The, that process is called tokenization. Mm. Then once you get the token, then by the way, the tokens could be a bit more complex. For example, the tokenizers could learn to not just use a word per token mapping. But it could also split words into two or three if that word has a bit multiple more meanings, multiple meanings and mm -hmm. complexities, or if it finds it effective. So oh, sub-tokenization. Um, sub-tokenization. So you may have a situation where uh, a five-word uh, sentence gives you twelve or fifteen tokens, or maybe hmm. less. So it's a matter. It's a the concept is more about information preservation within a substructure that is a vector rather than a one-to-one -one mapping between the words and, and, and the vector. Right. Same thing with the images. An image is a two-dimensional structure which has a third dimension of red, green, blue, right? Right. So if you flatten that entire thing into a pixel intensity over that entire two times, uh, times three, so to say, dimension, then, then you get a larger vector. But that's just a simplistic tokenization where you say, hey, I'm going to flatten an image flatten that more by red, green, blue. Mm -hmm. And then after that, I'm going to have a vector representing the pixel. Mm -hmm. From there, you can have a deeper tokenization that may consider the structure, for example, the adjacency of objects or the distance between objects or even some deeper level of understanding of the objects within that image. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, you go from a piece of artifacts like audio and in an audio, you use a, a spectrograms and, and you turn that into specific other artifacts. So you you go from an asset to a vector. Mm -hmm. Now there's this other step called embedding, which is basically doing a projector of that a projection of that vector onto a vector space that is shared by every other piece of artifacts. I mean, hmm. other piece of data in that space. It's like a normalization. Like a normalization. But then by 
that projection, what you essentially do, especially if you have a multimodal model, like if you work with an image and if you work with text, for example, mm -hmm. then you tokenize them each, which is a one-to-one -one relationship between an image and a text and a tokenizer that works for them. And once you have these two vectors, you do that projection onto that shared vector space, so to say. Mm -hmm. And the beautiful thing about that is that, and you do that through training, the beautiful thing about that is that once you land these things within the same space, mm -hmm. they become of the same nature. Right. So you can start comparing them. Yeah. So you can start assigning relations and making, uh, having statements like a car, C-A-R, written in text form. Compared to the image of a compared car. Compared to the image of a car. So, so it's like a- characters will be closed in location. So it's almost like space. a Rosetta Stone. You're exactly. taking you're taking one language and another language and you're sharing them in, in a certain way. And then once you have this shared, say you translate them all to Latin, then you can do whatever you want from there. And the common the, the common substrate of all of these different things, as assumption at this is that there's information that is preserved in these different types of artifacts. So you're almost doing an information extraction exercise, right? D describe that. What do you mean by information? So it, it may be a longer conversation, but well. at the end of the day, <laughs> at the end of the day, so information, and I know you had a whole uh, uh, video about the nature of information. Yeah, it could be contextualized to the piece of artifacts that you're working uh, you're working with, but in a very very simple manner, information is this uh, entity or this thing that could give you. It's hard to define information without using information. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, you, it's, you have to. <laughs> it's this thing that yeah. can give you a bit of a pattern, right? Mm -hmm. So, and we usually base that pattern on uh, the notion of order, disorder, symmetry, and so on and so forth. Yeah. But if you have something that can um, give you a pattern about in, indifference and or disorder about a specific subsystem, then you start having information. Mm -hmm. For example, if I do this, Nothing has changed very much. So if you were on the receptive end of that pattern, you won't really get much information. But if I do, there's a difference in what I did before and what I'm doing now. Sure. Now, you may not understand why I'm doing that, but you would understand that there's a difference between what I, the way I tap, uh, the frequency at which I tapped my hands before and the frequency at which I tapped it after. Mm -hmm. Then you've gained information. Yeah. So it's the same way that you may understand some differences within an image, for example, looking at a contour and then something changed between this and this, then you may realize that these may be two different objects and so on and so forth. And within text as well, you may have difference maybe between words or between paragraphs and between different structures. So you have some form of information. And a beautiful thing about information is that it could be combined. So it's the evolution of information is what you're... So it's the extraction of information and or differences in patterns within different modalities of data artifacts. But a beautiful thing about that is that it could be combined at a certain level right. or compared. Yeah. And that's what makes it possible for you to essentially extract information out of an image mm -hmm. by understanding how different it is or how many different patterns exist within that image. Yeah. And extracting information out of a piece of text by understanding how many different patterns exist within that text. And then putting that together in a normalized space through which you can start comparing them yeah and then reversing that you can now combine text to images and basically have that relation maintained with all of that combined is that would you say would that be the fundamentals of like a general ai that could do everything <laughs> we're we're getting into the realm of agi yeah right? AGI. Uh, I, I would love your opinion on that <laughs> if you feel comfortable talking no, about of course it. of course so um 
What is intelligence according to you? According to me? This is such a big question. Um, I've thought about this a lot. My personal opinion on this at this point is, uh, well, for the listeners, we're going to define AGI really quickly. AGI is artificial general intelligence, effectively meaning you can ask an AI to do anything that a human could be able to do or possibly even more, right? And it could be able to help you with that. Would you agree that that's the definition or do you have an expanded definition? That's, that's somewhat why I'm, I'm uh, asking the question of what is intelligence. Uh, intelligence. Because, because as agreeing on AGI being artificial general intelligence assumes that we agree on what intelligence is. Sure, okay. My, my definition of intelligence would be... <laughs> wow, thanks. <laughs> uh, the ability to synthesize information and create uh, create new actions based on information that you weren't explicitly told to do. That'd be probably my definition of intelligence. That's a, that's a decent definition. Um, would you disagree that the context in which you have to do that specific workflow that you define has to be defined, i.e. you have to do it within the context of, I don't know, literature or... Uh, robotics automation in the subfield, for example, having a robot that can control a specific arm either for surgery, and it would be a different thing if that robot controlled an arm, say, in a restaurant, and so on and so forth. I think that I think that when we talk about the generalization of intelligence mm -hmm. or even information, we're making a bold claim that goes beyond what we understand so far about the nature of these things. Uh-huh. Right. So, sure. So I I see. So if I want to break down the problem of AGI, uh, again, I might have already expressed that I'm not a very big fan of that definition because I don't really think we know exactly what we mean when we say that. Sure. Um, but if we want to get into a practical uh, realm, I think that it may be possible to es essentially, and which is the the state in which we are now, by getting these models to progress in their ability to impact the world as well. Mm -hmm. So we, we discussed the software version of the AI so far, which is you give it data, it could recognize it, or at this point, it can also generate data. Sure. But what is the software real world interaction mode at this point? Mm -hmm. right? So we have many systems, for example, in healthcare and life sciences that have to deal with the real world in the way that, say, a hospital equipment functions, or in the way that um, a robotic arm that controls cameras uh, mm -hmm. functions. So you mm -hmm. get many other things about a real world that may have to do with intelligence. So I think a lot of the work that we're doing on improving the quality of these AI systems has to bring things all the way up to these definitions of AI that I mentioned earlier, which involve in and include planning, scheduling, and acting and sensing as well. So when you start augmenting these systems with these additional capabilities, then you start training agents that are able to plan and schedule and act on in the real world. Then you get that sense of AGI that seems right. closer to the definition sure. that you gave it, right? Yeah. Now the we the ability to do that at that level at that scale gets challenged by where are you sensing what kind of information, and also where are you acting in which kind of world environments, right? Mm -hmm. And if you want to look at the real world in which we operate, and you want to look at all the types of interactions and actions that can happen, it, the, the number of possibilities is larger than the number of atoms in the universe, right? 
And so how would you have a generally intelligent system that knows how to act in this entire world? I find that quite a challenging thing to mm. believe. But if you constrain the problem, if you make the problem simpler, as simple as, I want to have a generally intelligent system that would learn how to use all the hospital equipments within the hospital system, mm -hmm. then maybe you have the opportunity to have an AGI system that can essentially take in a task and execute that effectively. Mm -hmm. So that is my um, uh, techno-optimist view sure. of the possibilities of AGI by training agents that have world representation, representations, but these are simpler worlds representations that are constrained by the problem space in which you want these systems to operate. Right. And then ha being able to plan, schedule, sense, and act, including the other type of capabilities mm -hmm. that it can do. Okay, interesting. So Dana doesn't think that we're gonna have this one omniscient AGI, artificial general intelligence, that's gonna be handling everything, but he rather thinks that we're going to have these smaller, more specialized AIs that kind of handle different tasks and help us do stuff a lot faster. This is actually not that different from that whole conversation around the Tesla bot, right? Like where you could have a robot that's like a human that does human tasks, or you can have a bunch of really small robots that handle the tasks that we already do on a daily basis. Kind of the same thing. Pretty interesting. Um, in the next segment, we're going to get into the problem of AI hallucinating, which is where it just makes up a ton of random stuff. And uh, that's clearly a problem. I was very curious about that. So that'll be a fun conversation. Plus, we need to see how fast Danu can type. So uh, get ready for that. Support for this episode of Waveform comes from Gigabyte. There's a lot of talk out there about how AI is revolutionizing our world. Computers are writing newsletters, robotic bees are pollinating flowers, and a whole new wave of driverless taxis are popping up in cities all over the world. But how can AI power our passions and what we do for fun? That's where Gigabyte's AI gaming laptops come in. So their range of powerful and portable new laptops deliver cutting edge performance for anyone looking to explore the brave new world of AI powered gaming. So every 2024 Aorus machine comes equipped with the Gigabyte AI Nexus, which is like a central hub located with all the AI powered features you could hope for. So that includes super useful tools like AI Power Gear, which automatically throttles and extends your computer's battery life depending on your power source and usage. You'll also get access to AI Boost, which optimizes performance based on what you're doing in that moment, whether you're ripping through an FPS or running your own large language model. AI Boost automatically adjusts the GPU and processors to maximize responsiveness and deliver unparalleled efficiency. Lastly, AI Generator includes various generative AI apps for quick startup, and all 2024 Gigabyte models seamlessly integrate with tools like OpenAI and Microsoft's Copilot AI chatbot. But the Aorus 16X and the Gigabyte G6X take it to the next level with a dedicated Copilot key, allowing users to swiftly tap into productivity and generative AI capabilities. I also keep hearing AI is gonna change a lot in the gaming world. Andrew, can you think of anything about that? Not just optimization, like you said, but like more personal optimization I could see happening where like maybe you're playing a competitive game like Valorant and you want higher FPS and lower resolution, like you're okay versus like The Witcher where you might want 4K crispy resolution and like a lower frame rate. I think finding that between your computer specs and what you want might help out a lot. Nice. So all of the models that I've been talking about are available right now at oris.com slash laptops slash gigabyte dash AI. 
So that's A-O-R-U-S dot com slash laptops slash gigabyte dash AI. Gigabyte. Team up. Fight on. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Uh, Ellis wanted to hop in and ask a question real quick. Yeah, sorry. I really liked what you said about um, defining intelligence as it pertains to AGI. And I thought David brought up a really important kind of intelligence, like intuition and deduction and the ability to uh, extract not just pieces of information, but threads and systems of information from multiple kinds of contexts. But there's lots of other kinds of intelligence that people like cognitive scientists like to define and classify things like spatial reasoning, um, things like uh, engaging in dialectical thinking. Um, and these are all intelligences that we've observed in ourselves. And so when we think about sort of a general purpose Swiss army knife AI, do you think that we should be limiting that to the kinds of tasks that our brains do on a daily basis? Or do you see that there's going to be almost like new methods of thinking and new cognitive strengths that emerge as uh, these neural networks get stronger? That's, that's a super interesting question. I, for, In a practical sense, um, I'm actually with you, David, on that definition, right? Because I think that that's the form of intelligence that could be mechanistically or mechanically implemented in a piece of software, as in program, right? So by our own intuition, we can think about doing things like that by breaking that down into steps. The kind of um, intelligence that you're talking about, to me, is a bit more like that emergence, right? Like that emergent ability that, and I don't think we've gotten to the point where we can perceive what those are <laughs> yeah or intuitively yeah, it's like a new color yeah, yeah intuitively know what exactly we need to do in order for the models to have that spatial awareness or that other kind of ability now we can program that by having segmentation models and having distance calculations and then coming up with some mathematical heuristics through which we can claim that we've achieved that capability but i would argue that the way we learn us is not exactly the way we teach the machines how to do that, right? So there, there's definitely a lot of a lot more research, and we may stumble upon, you know, we, we may basically strike luck and then find out that other kinds of scaling mechanisms, or the way it works in physics today is that you have smaller systems, you have a simple interaction mode like magnetization or just collision analysis or the different forces that we're working with, about four of them, and based on these simple interaction modes you get the entire universe the way we know it. At <laughs> yeah. least it's the current theory. Yeah, right? fundamentals of physics. Yeah, at least it's, a, it's the way we, we know it. But there may be another way, right? We may have just sensed it in our own apparatus of sensing in that kind of form, right. and we're able to explain it the way we explain it, but it's still a projection on the, on the, on the screen that we're looking at and doing our analysis. So I, I'm, I'm super excited about the possibility of us finding out more cognitive routes, so to say, 
in the way these systems learn. And right now, the best tools that we have essentially in our laboratory of AI are these deep learning tools, the transformers, and there are many other architectures that are being built around that. Things like uh, memory aware neural network architectures or things like the abilities to pull from a vector store and augment the knowledge uh, with the retrieval augmented generation capability. So I feel like the more we add interaction mode and information in, uh, uh, retrieval and use um, utilization capabilities within these models, the more possibilities we have to have this additional emerging capability that is a lot more cognitive than mm. the mechanic way we've been doing things. So I think that's an open question. I think it's a beautiful question. And I hope we get lucky in our lifetime to find a way to get that done. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> we've stumbled upon a lot of random stuff in science. So there's definitely a possibility that we have that happen, which yeah. would be big. So I think it's Richard Feynman that said that science is the belief in the ignorance of the expert. So I, I think that if we if we really take it as a as a basic principle that we could stumble upon some things and then we we believe that whatever we know so far is may may or may not be the way, mm -hmm. then we have an opportunity to really inc incorporate new information and all knowledge that can get us faster and mm. further. Mm. Yeah, I want to pull this back uh, a little bit back to some practical stuff again. <laughs> um, a big yeah, philosophical. Thing. Yeah, no, I love the philosophical conversation. I love the philosophical. Um, I think that one thing that people think about when they think about generative AI mm -hmm. uh, is the problem of hallucinations. Mm -hmm. And uh, for people that don't know, hallucinating is basically when you generate something that just isn't right or isn't true. Um, in large language models, you can ask a question and it will confidently lie to you sometimes. And how do you look at how? we're gonna solve that problem. Because it seems like part of generative AI and part of large language models in general is that it's just, it's parroting information based on probabilities. And those probabilities are not always gonna be correct. So you're, I'm assuming, working on ways to make these AIs more accurate. Um, accuracy is obviously gonna be a major, a major problem and something that we need to solve over the next couple of years. Mm -hmm. How do you look at solving the hallucination problem? The the problem of hallucination, so the way these models work now is that you give it a lot of data and the question you're really asking of it is, um, give me, let's simplify a token to a word and working within the text domain, give me the next word based on these words that I gave you, right? So if you, if the, if you qualify the problem as, write a novel for me or write a paragraph or write a summary of something, mm -hmm. then traditionally what would happen is that you would give it the beginning of uh, uh, a sentence and it would say complete this sentence for me. And so it's that sentence completion, so to say, that is based on probability. Mm -hmm. And even basing that on probability in within the context of this conversation is a simplification. So there's, sure. a lot work, there's a lot more going on, but the basic principles of how it works is that it would, let's assume that it works off of the most probable word to follow that word that existed. And then taking that longer sentence as an input, figuring out what is the most probable word that could follow and so on and so forth. What that means if you simplify the problem just at that level, and if I say, give me a complete this sentence, doctor something works at John Hopkins or something like that, then it would just put mm -hmm. a name there. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the question you haven't asked is make sure that that name 
is an existing human being that is really a doctor at Jenna Hopkins and whatnot, right? So fundamentally, mm. it's a different question to ask off of that system. And then we're back on the reason I call these things a system in the beginning is because, yes, you may have a model that gives you the next word prediction or the next token prediction, but then you still need to do a lot more work on top of that input and that output and even that processing sometimes to make sure that the output and the response that you get out of it is a truthful one or a real one, mm -hmm. right? Or a less toxic one if the answer is toxic and you don't want to serve toxicity to your users. So there are many pre-processing and post-processing activities that need to happen. One, to uh, uh, make sure that the context, I mean, the, the answer of the model is grounded. We call that concept grounding, grounded in reality. Mm -hmm. And the second is to make sure that the context, the output of that model um, goes by a certain set of responsible AI principles, right? So those are two things. But fundamentally, the way the science works is that it would give you something whether that thing is true or not. Sure. It's it's about it's your job to make sure that that thing becomes true. And so the way that happens then n now is that you need to associate that response to basically a source of truth, right? What is truth? Yeah. <laughs> what, <laughs> yeah. What what is truth? What is reality? And that's that's another thing where you another another reason why you probably want to contain and, and contextualize that mm -hmm. use case so to say down to a source of truth, mm -hmm. right? Uh, give me Dr. Blah that works at John Hopkins, then you need to probably have a database of all the doctors that work in that hospital and make sure that after you get the name of a doctor, because the model will give you that, you check that against that database. And if that person doesn't exist, or you can say, fill this specific spot off of the names, the list of names mm -hmm. out of the database and constrain and constrain. So, so that's why Bard now has that Google button where you can ask a question and then you can double check it. That's another context. That's another mechanism for for that. But that's not exactly why it has that. It has that button. Mm -hmm. um, the just to just to land on the concept on the concept of hallucination. So it was named hallucination because it could give you some some answers that seem real but are not necessarily real. Mm -hmm. But it, this is a normal functioning mode of these technologies. Um, the reason it took us a while to release BART, for example, was not because, well, we invented the Transformers. So sure. we, we've known how to do this thing for a long time. Yeah. But it's it's all of the additional tech set of technologies that we had to build and principles that we had to really build around the behaviors of a model that really get us to, you know, one, the requirements of build addition, building additional technologies, and then two, the challenge around making these technologies deterministic in the sense that you always want a specific answer. So you have to do a lot more evaluations. You have to do a lot more checks and balances. You mm -hmm. have to add a number of metrics. Like, is this model answering a question when it doesn't know the answer? You probably want to codify that into something that gets checked yeah. and so on and so forth. So there's been a lot of work that we've done on one, uh, really having clear and concise responsible AI's um, principles. And then two, turning those into technologies and or checking mechanisms that could work in conjunction with the creation, the operation, uh, and the operation of a model. Mm. And then three, uh, making sure that these cores and, and outputs of checks are available so that that technology could be used on a cloud ecosystem, for example, as part okay. of the platform. So we work with research to understand what are these responsible AI principles that could be turned into metrics and guardrails and so on those get turned into product capabilities that work alongside our models. 
And then these models are exposed or are commercialized, so to say, on our cloud platform. Mm -hmm. This product called Vertex AI, and you can go find that out on 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 you know cloud at Google, or mm -hmm. cloud, right? So that's that's how we we're essentially fighting the problem of uh, of hallucination. There's a lot more mm -hmm. work going on in that space. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. Well, I think I'm going to close it out here soon, but I um, I want to end with asking if you think that there's anything that we missed, anything that people would gain a lot from hearing about that they just are not hearing in popular media that's very important to the whole AI story? Uh, two things, maybe. One is the consumer applications of AI, so BAR, ChatGPT, are very popular now, mm. So, which is something that I'm, I'm happy about because I think that it's really bringing the conversation closer and closer to everyone. And... Uh, you and I have been working in tech for a while, so we m may have been aware of that coming up and coming together, but I think it's a massive opportunity that today, um, people that are uh, news editors or writers or artists or folks that work in different domains uh, can use some of these things to help them write better, to help them um, generate images that they can use as part of the content that they produce and create to write better letters, to write better, to do homework and, and so on and so forth. So I really love the, the consumer application. But one of the things that I don't think gets talked about a lot is the developer experience um, and also the mm. way the barrier of entry from uh, creativity and product generation and product creation yeah. standpoint, it's getting really, really lower huh. with these set of technologies. And so I, I I really think that we are at the cusp of a new form of economy where creation uh, of valuable items of different kinds of forms would not just be a matter of a few being able to do that because they have a high, a high training and they've been, they spent years doing, I don't know, an undergrad in computer science and so on and so forth. But if you bring that level of assistive creativity abilities to the masses so to yeah. say yeah i found that people have ideas right it's like people are creative if you sit down and you tell someone let me take away the problem of knowing how to implement these ideas let's talk about your ideas you get many ideas to start emerging mm. so i think that we're really at the border of a transformation where the economy may take a different form if different people without the need to really understand in details how to implement some of these ideas, are able to, one, iterate on the ideas with mm. the assistance of generative AI, to validate some of these ideas with the ability to prototype those in a matter of hours rather than years. And then three, test these ideas in the ecosystem and maybe find value for different people that they could commercialize these ideas for. So I'm very optimistic about mm. the possibilities of this in the future. All right. Well, the last thing we're going to do, we have a little game here that we play when we bring guests on where we figure out how quickly they can type the alphabet. <laughs> it's a running wow. scoreboard. Um, you can use either the MacBook keyboard. Oh, you can a keyboard use. Thing. Yeah, it's a now keyboard. Now I test. get it. Yes. Okay. Right, so you'll take can that. Ask, so you I'm get. Gonna, I'm going to ask the AI to type, type this thing for me. <laughs> <laughs> so you get three chances. Um, Wait, what is the most optimized way of typing the whole alphabet? If you, as soon as you start typing, it starts. Okay. Uh, so as soon as you type the letter A, it'll start. And 
does he have to hit enter at the end? No, you don't have to hit enter. As soon as you hit Z, it'll finish. Got it. And, so, and uh, no typos is allowed. So uh, if you if, miss a letter, like let's say you miss B and go on to C, it will, it will not count. You still have, you to, have, hit B. You have to hit every single letter. And you'll yeah. see at the top where it says type A. Okay. Um, Oh, that will tell you the letter you're supposed to Do we to give people honest. tests at all, or is it just three it's, chances? It's three okay, chances. there's three total chances. Right. Okay, ready? Right. You gotta hit G. Oh. It's harder than it looks. Definitely a lot harder than it looks. That's okay. You gotta hit J. This is why you get three chances. Don't worry about it. I was extremely slow. Okay, so first okay. run, 26 seconds. Now so I hit, just... hit reset. Can I change the keyboard? <laughs> yeah, you sure. can change the keyboards. Yeah, yeah. All right, so now I understand why there are options. Yeah. <laughs> so we have... We have mechanical keyboard. We also have the butterfly keyboard that um, Apple sells. Let me know. I'm going to get a keyboard. All right, so I'll go mechanical. You go mechanical? Let's do it. Set us up however you want. Round two. Go for it. Nice. Okay. 26 to 9. Yeah, 26 to 9.8. Much Whoa, better. That's a big come up. Much All right. better. All right. Last try. Last try. But you guys aren't impressed. That means that I'm not. Nine is not, pretty good. I'm not that high. Nine is not bad. I was We've, not far. I was not far in front nine of Nine is, is actually really good, especially for a second attempt. We've seen some things in here that you would not believe. <laughs> <laughs> like I'll show seconds. you the scoreboard after this and you'll four be seconds surprised. Stop. Okay. Okay, ready? Ready? Go. Nice. Eight. 8.73. Not bad. Right. Honestly, not bad. Uh, okay. Where, where is that on the leaderboard, David? So here's the leaderboard. Fastest Tom Scott, 3.5 seconds. It insane. was insane. That was crazy to watch. It was just... Um, wow. So let's see. 8.73 is right above Brandon. Wow. All right. You Actually, no. Faster than David Blaine, too. Hey, you beat oh, David Blaine. You beat David Blaine. <laughs> <laughs> he might be a magician, but you're a magician on the keyboard. Wow. Uh, oh, eight, eight point seven th seven three. Right up. You there. also beat Hassan Minaj. Hey, Hassan. <laughs> <laughs> so you beat Hassan Minaj, David Blaine, and Brandon. Nice. 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 Cool. All right. Well, thank you again. Well, thanks for having Seriously, me. Seriously, thank you for coming. Um, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, well, I'm Dean Banga on X now. Okay. Nowadays, uh, and I'm LinkedIn on LinkedIn as well. So as Dan Banga, essentially. Awesome. We'll yeah. link that in the description. And uh, do you want to shout out your any projects that you're finishing up right now or working on right now? Well, that Google can people can see at Google. So the the Vertex AI platform is really the platform that I'm working on, right? So that that's what we be, we put our solutions on. And uh, I say I would say that look forward to many other more industry slash domain adapted uh, uh, capabilities around LLMs because I think that large models are a big thing and I think it requires a lot of additional technologies to actually make it work yeah. in in applications. 
And I think that this is the, about the time where we need to come up with things like design patterns, right? Mm -hmm. So if you think about a gang of four, for example, it's a book that was needed when programming needed some kind of structure. Mm -hmm. So I think we are at a place in time now where we need some kind of structure on how we build and deploy large application, large models in, in, in enterprise environments. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I'm working on. Awesome. Sweet. Well, everyone uh, watching and listening at home, if you were surprised that we had an episode today, don't worry. We have normal episode coming on Friday. This was just a little extra story for you. So uh, hope you enjoyed it. And we'll see you on Friday. Cheers. Peace. to do's, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.